0: Hello and welcome back to the fourth episode of How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Scotsman, and in this limited podcast series, we are taking a look at what lessons Scotland could learn from other countries which have experienced independence. So far, we have explored the thorny question of what type of border an independent Scotland might have with England, how Scotland's democracy might work, and what might happen with the country's currency. One significant question mark for an independent Scotland that we have not yet examined, however, is the type of nation it will be in terms of broader social policy. In particular, it is worth looking at the health systems of other independent countries. The National Health Service is a beloved national institution across the United Kingdom, and any politicians in an independent Scotland would be escorting themselves out of power if they attempted to stop it from existing in a newly independent country. The Scottish NHS has also been devolved to Holyrood since 1999 with its own systems, processes and governance already in existence. We've heard from Elena Besic, the director of the Centre for Democracy and Human Rights in Podgorica, on aspects of Montenegro's independence already. But the topic of health is one area which is generally more comparable with Scotland. In 2006, Montenegro split up its union with its larger partner Serbia, well after the fall of communism and after more than a decade of modernization. Milena describes how Montenegro's health system has fared since.
1: When Montenegro and Serbia were part of a big Yugoslavia, the good thing about the socialism is that education, healthcare were free, were very good quality, and simply It was really good in Yugoslavia. Suddenly, everything fell apart. But the main health care centers were based in Belgrade, in Serbia, and the the best uh, faculty of medicine, the best experts were educated in Belgrade. And somehow, even if we are separated uh, healthcare systems and we have our own faculty of medicine and our own experts, people still rely and trust medical workers from Serbia. When it comes to some complex surgeries, uh, complex issues, people still can travel and uh, be treated there. These two systems are uh, cooperating, so it is not unusual. If there's some kind of medical treatments that you cannot get in Montenegro, officially you can get the recommendation to go there and both the system will compensate the services between themselves, like payments and and stuff. So this is something which is good and it is... uh, allowed officially that, but the problem is that the quality of uh, medical uh, service in both countries is, uh, let's say, the level is somehow dropping uh, because of the private sector and corruption in the healthcare systems. Not because uh, we have two different Serbian Montenegro, but we are, both systems are facing similar problems and similar issues and also financing uh, those systems because the level of depth compares to the GDP is huge. And new investments in the healthcare systems depends and rely in a certain amount over its support from EU through the mechanisms. And comparing to what was previously uh, before the referendum and right now, it, it was sold. So uh, simply, if you want uh, the treatment in Belgrade, the, when it comes to the private practice, If you have money, you can go wherever you want. But uh, when we talk about official uh, state health care systems, there is a good, uh, let's say, relation and you can be treated if it's indicated. There's commission that can decide, of course, this treatment cannot be done in Montenegro. You will be treated there and opposite, vice versa. But... There are less cases because we are a smaller system. And during the COVID uh, pandemic situation, for example, citizens of Serbia equally could be treated in Montenegro simply in the same, so vice versa. You couldn't face the problem to get the treatment or vaccination if you are from different country.
0: Also of interest is New Zealand. Lara Greaves, a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Auckland, describes how that country's health system was developed and where it stands today.
2: After New Zealand established as a state in, in the 19th century, we kind of went to a period of like this haphazard and slow growth of a healthcare system. We moved to sort of a welfare safety net earlier than a lot of other nations. In the 1890s, we had a sort of Pensions Act. And then in the 1930s, the sort of broader social safety net and social welfare system was developed. Over this time, I would say we didn't really have much of anything. I wouldn't even say that our healthcare system was modeled after much, to be be perfectly honest there. It evolved over time. And I think generally in response to diseases, just the, the classic way that a lot of them do. And we kind of ended up with a system of where you have Despite being only 5 million people, we have 22 district health boards so that you have regional access to healthcare. We have a public healthcare system, though. So across all of this time, our healthcare system has been public. There's been, like, limited influence of a private system. People can get health insurance and can engage with a private system, but it's very limited. It doesn't do things, most things. Like, you can't, say, have a baby (laughs) in a private. There's no private option for that. So there's limited private health care, really. So most people rely on our public system. So we've, we currently have a system of 22 district health boards. They're regionalized, and that's going to be overhauled because of the inefficiency inherent in that. And the unfairness, people have called it postcode lottery. So, you know, where you live in the country probably shouldn't determine your cancer care. Like I think most people can agree on that. So that's been a step that the current government has taken and the idea that they want to establish an independent Māori health authority, which we're going to see, all of these reforms will start on the 1st of July. So that's been something that Māori leaders and Māori experts and doctors have been pushing for for quite some time because there are huge health disparities on pretty much every outcome between Māori and non-Māori. And that will be our way of, I guess, trying something a bit new and different.
0: But what about the United Kingdom's closest and most culturally similar neighbour, the Republic of Ireland. Neve Gallagher, lecturer in British and Irish history at the University of Cambridge, is here to guide us through the early years of the newly independent Irish state.
3: The island of Ireland had been within the United Kingdom. The UK comprised the island of Ireland and Great Britain. In 1920, under the Government of Ireland Act, Ireland was partitioned, into two administrations, Northern Ireland, which is here until this day, still a part of the United Kingdom, and Southern Ireland, which lasted less than one year. And that was replaced by a new agreement under the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which created the Irish Free State. So from 1921, you have two administrations on the island of Ireland. And presaging those developments, there was a guerrilla conflict led by Irish Republicans, who founded a new organisation called the Irish Republican Army and the Crown forces. This had gone on from January 19 through to mid 1921, when negotiations began leading up to the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So the memory of that conflict, and indeed then the resulting treaty, helped to shape some of the decisions made by the new Irish Free State. The treaty was broadly accepted by the Irish representatives. It was a far greater measure of independence than Ireland would have achieved under what was called Home Rule, that quest for self-government, which Irish nationalists had been pursuing in different ways for about 30 years before that. It gave Ireland control of its own army, its own navy, its own finances. The downside, however, was that it was now a dominion in the British Empire. So it was like Canada, New Zealand. South Africa, Australia. And with that entailed an oath of allegiance to the monarch. And these were the two fundamental points that split the Irish Republicans over this treaty, because the 1919 through the 21 war had been about achieving or rather establishing a republic for Ireland, a 32-county Irish republic. The treaty implicitly acknowledged partition, that part of the island, that would be Northern Ireland, would not be a part of the south anymore. And it also kept Ireland in in the empire, therefore, or 26 counties in the empire, so therefore not a republic at all. So the first couple of years of of independence were marred by civil war in Ireland over that arrangement. And this came to help define what happened in the first few years of the state. The state was preoccupied with trying to heal those civil war divisions, bringing the anti-treaty out, as they were called, those who supported the 32-county Irish Republic and who had fought on that basis, as well as for several other reasons. The new government was quite keen to try and bring them back into the fold, to heal those splits, lest they developed into something much worse it also then was preoccupied with what independence actually meant you know they had now control of their own finances and economy but there were you know the significant damage done for in- to infrastructure across the country and also this was the 1920s the end of the first world war returning veterans en mass coming home and really both in at the time Britain and then in the new twenty-six counties of Ireland, you had a state completely ill-equipped to cope with the social and economic, you know, and, and mental health services that would have been required in that early 1920s period. So I think it's fair to say that the early 1920s were a bit of sort of scrabbling together, trying to just make the new state get up and running, trying to heal those civil war divisions. But then in the years that were to follow, trying to establish what did an independent Ireland mean which often came with uh, how to distance itself away from the legacy of that British connection. And that was more or less a central preoccupation throughout the 1920s, which transpired in different ways.
0: Ireland therefore faced significant challenges in an era of growing threats from fascism, but also a booming American economy and a slowly modernising and recovering Britain, which continued to cling on to its empire. The leaders of Ireland, however, were preoccupied with dismantling the relics of their association with England and creating a new state in line with their vision. This was particularly true when looking at the influence of one of Ireland's most prominent historical figures, Eamon de Valera. De Valera was the founding father of one of the country's most dominant political parties, Fianna Foyle, and the main opponent to the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, which led to the creation of the Irish Free State and the partition of the island. His influence defined much of the early years of the Free State, and many historians argue that he was a central reason why the route to the modern island you would recognise today was so long and treacherous. Neve Gallagher explains more about how important and influential de Valera was in the establishment and development of the early Irish Republic. It is also a demonstration of what could happen with Scotland if it becomes independent, with Nicola Sturgeon's image of such a country potentially crucial to the state's early success and priorities. So was Ireland made in de Valera's image?
3: This is a very messy and rocky story. So for the first you know couple of decades of the new state, the new Irish Free State, particularly when de Valera, Eamon de Valera the leader of the anti-treaty movement, when he came to power in 1932... He spent much of his time trying to undo the treaty that had been agreed in 1921. So dismantling various odds and ends. He had a vision for Ireland, one which today we would say was a highly conservative vision for Ireland. For him, it was ironically the definition of modernity. And he saw Ireland's future as one that was a rural country, protectionist. Yes, it might have had allies in different countries, but it was very inward focused. He saw sort of the ideal Ireland as being the west of Ireland, the untouched, beautiful Ireland. I, Imagine in a way it's a bit like how the Highlands of Scotland are marketed, you know, that beautiful, untouched rural um, idyll. Um, he saw that as kind of the way that Ireland should be presenting itself. And with that came particular views around what made a good Irish person. And that was bound up with ideas around morality. As so for people like De Valera, you know, having a very strong religious commitment was really important, a very good Catholic, as indeed were most Irish people who were of a uh, Catholic background. The Catholic Church had a lot of power in Ireland, came to have a huge amount of power in the 1930s, which we can talk about. And all of this helped to shape a new kind of state, one that was in their eyes, you know, very moral, very Catholic, conservative, family oriented, concerned with issues that it blamed on that legacy of the British connection, such as rampant emigration, which didn't stop after partition or independence. Emigration continued, it was accelerated in the 1930s, again the 1950s from Ireland. So, trying to stop all of these things insofar as they could was seen to be very, very important.
0: The main change in Ireland's development came much later, and in historical terms, only very recently. Dr. Gallagher explains more.
3: Maybe the jury is slightly out in this, but there are several books, you know, and people would colloquially talk about is Ireland, Dev's Ireland, um, which I think says it all. It links that leader to what Ireland came to be. And it's not entirely his fault, you know, it's not a sort of one party kind of dictatorship or one person dictatorship. There are other people involved in this who are seeing eye to eye with his policies and who are indeed those who are voting for him also need to take responsibility for how they cast their vote. But still, he was incredibly important in how he shaped Ireland in the 1930s in his, I suppose, the very strong aspect of clericalism that w- was a feature of 1930s Ireland. You know, Dev Lera is a part of that story, a very strong part of that story. And he's particularly a part of the, the story of trying to dismantle the treaty, like I said, but also in bringing, I suppose, in the end, kind of economic ruin to Ireland in the 1930s. And protectionism failed. He sparked a trade war with with Britain at the time to, well, he did it for a variety of reasons, one of which was a, a legacy about land payments. This is back in the day when all of the land was controlled by just a handful of percent of people who were the landlords. And then a series of policies restored that land ownership to. Irish people, creating a whole new nation of landlords. And in so doing, and in those payments, the Irish Free State needed to commit to paying some of that money back. And de Valera, point blank, said, no, we're paying no more money back for that, sparking a trade war. So anyway, he was very important in terms of the policies, in terms of the leadership, and in terms of the impact. You know, the huge rampant emigration in Ireland from the 1930s can absolutely be linked to his leadership in a lot of those policy areas. So yeah, I think that's quite fair.
0: The politicians of the new Irish state were therefore faced with a significant question in the 1920s. Namely, how to look after its own people. The concept of a welfare state in the style of the United Kingdom was a post-war invention. So how did Ireland approach the issue?
3: Ireland or the Republic of Ireland has been transformed since the 70s, but mainly since the 1990s. It is hard to believe, but Ireland would have been the most poor country in Europe right through until the 1960s. I mean, genuinely, really incredibly poor, partly to do with de Valera's economic policies, trying to distance itself from the British connection partly to do with the legacy of the union relationship, which had cultivated particular ways of agriculture and farming and industry in Ireland, which were almost impossible to try and recreate in the first few decades. But Ireland really benefited in the European Union. And then with the injection of cash it received in the 1990s called the Celtic Tiger, um, this allowed Ireland to come up with new innovative economic policies, which again will attract different views, lower corporation tax, kind of relying on, you know, competition in order to attract these huge multi-billion dollar businesses probably even more than a billion probably trillion i don't really know your facebook books and your googles of the world etc all relocating to dublin driving up prices driving up money coming in um, making a lot more people wealthy but also exacerbating that gap then between the wealthy and the not wealthy or the squeezed middle even maybe be part of that group as well so yeah that broad brush uh, speaking ireland was really struggled in those first few decades of independence to try and find itself, to try to distance itself from the British connection. In doing so, it created, you know, lots of situations which I don't think anyone today could agree that were positive for Ireland. Immigration, the impact of women, the terrible economy, poverty, healthcare systems not being radically changed. The first few decades of independence were were very difficult for Ireland, but really it only seemed to find its feet I'd say, in the second half of the 20th century, and it's been a much more recent story of success. So I think we need to remember that the wealthy kind of liberal Ireland we might think about today is quite a new Ireland to the one that came before.
0: This question of health care and how to offer it to the public was inherently linked to the political context of Ireland. In particular, the relationship between the Catholic Church and the public, as well as the Irish culture being heavily influenced by Catholicism and the power of the church, saw major divergence from the UK's own approach to healthcare.
3: The Republic of Ireland has never had a welfare state as such. So the welfare state that you mentioned, which is created under Labour in the 1940s and then progressively rolled out with the Health Services Act, I think 19. 19- 48 is when it happened in Northern Ireland and come into operation in, in England, Scotland and Wales that year. Healthcare in the south of Ireland, so the Free State into the Republic, became very different. Prior to independence, it was more like Britain insofar as it was made up of the poor law, So, i.e. the poor law was something which was introduced in the 1830s in Ireland and that had a system of workhouses for those who Really could not afford to look after themselves, would use it as a last resort. So, poverty and then the assistance that they would have had, the medical assistance they would have had in the workhouse, were often linked together, right? So, you get these sorts of ideas that poverty and medicalisation come together. However, under the new governments in the 1920s onwards, Ireland's healthcare did change. It had a system of voluntary hospitals, which actually predated independence, but became, I think, much more a prominent part of the new state. Voluntary hospitals were often run by members of religious orders, particularly Catholic religious orders they still made up a huge part of health care in the new Irish Free State. You also had the introduction of county and district hospitals, which had slightly more connection to the new state. Now, as time went on, this system really continues. Ireland is very different to the rest of the UK in terms of that. It has private insurance, so you have private health care. And of course, this, again, creates that problem between those who are able to afford such insurance and therefore are entitled to probably a better provision and a faster provision Provision of healthcare than those who can't, and so these sorts of inequalities are exacerbated by that, by that system. There's no equality in healthcare in that sense.
0: Dr Gallagher explains more about how influential the church was and how that has impacted healthcare provision and the approach to welfare through the decades within Ireland.
3: Voluntary hospitals in the 1930s and 40s in more power. They're called voluntary hospitals because they are effectively voluntary. They're, they're funded by voluntary contributions and voluntary workers. So many of the religious orders who are involved in them were working for free. That's why so many of them have a very Catholic ethos. And that's where you get the uneasy connection between religion, but also medicine in the 30s and 40s, which has gone through almost to the present day. And this helps to influence judgments over you know, a right to life. If you've got a pregnant woman who's about to give birth you know, do you see of the child, do you see of the mother? As we know, abortion was not part and parcel of Ireland's policy until 2018. That was an, an uneasy relationship, I think, between both the religious orders and medicalisation. In a nutshell, Ireland developed in terms of its health care, through having voluntary systems of hospitals, through county and district hospitals, and then through the development of, of private insurance. It also had a national lottery, which was introduced in the 1930s, to fund some of that, called the sweepstakes, and often re- run by nurses who would come out dressed in their, their nurses' pinny, uniform, etc. And um, I think you would you would put money in, you would buy a ticket, and then your ticket might go on a, a horse that was going to run in a certain race or whatever. But considerable funds were raised by this. It lasted right from the 1930s through to the 1980s. The voluntary hospitals, even though they receive some state funding today, still many of them retain their independent ethos. So there's no sort of real centralised system of healthcare in the Republic of Ireland as there is in in with the NHS. It's much more fragmented. And then it depends on where you live, Some hospitals are better than others, but also then how much you're paying in private insurance and where you seek to go for your health care.
0: With the UK setting up the NHS in a move towards socialist medical care, did Ireland's political class simply claim it was too expensive to replicate? Neve Gallagher explains how there was more to it than simple economics and adds that the differences between the two systems, with one working in Northern Ireland and the other in the Republic, remains a hot topic.
3: Well, this is a really interesting question, because I think this is where parts of Northern Ireland and the South seem quite similar, even though in the end the results are very different. I think both the new Ulster Unionist administration in Northern Ireland, but also a very heavily Catholic administration in the South, were concerned about the perceived socialism, of universal healthcare, yeah? They saw this as a very bad thing because of its sort of secular ethos, but also for us unionists, they often linked socialism to working classes and indeed linked linked to the Catholic Church, despite the fact that the Catholic Church was incredibly anti-socialist. So both of them were similar in that regard, even though in Northern Ireland, the NHS was indeed introduced. So I think that is part of the reason why a universal system of healthcare did not arise in the 1940s and it has remained a sort of question ever since but I think it's become much more complicated to try and do that. I also think that there are a lot of Irish people who are not very happy with the healthcare system in Ireland and it is a recurring question whether or not this should be something that should be considered in the future. I think there's lots of comparisons made and certainly we're in the 2019 election but the long story short is that the, the waiting lists for healthcare in both the Republic of Ireland and the UK are not Massively different. They're both really bad. They're both underfunded. There's both an inequity when it comes to healthcare. So, you know, in the UK, I think Northern Ireland's one of the worst. In terms of accessing, even speaking to a doctor, it's it's really really bad. The time lag is unbelievable. Maybe that difference across Northern Ireland, but certainly areas that I'm familiar with, it is it is incredibly bad. And I compare that to Cambridge, where I'm speaking to you from. And even if there's a waiting, even if there's a waiting list for an appointment, it takes maybe three weeks now, which is the the, the longest it's ever been in my experience of getting an appointment, very often before I get an appointment within a week. In Northern Ireland, you're lucky if you're able to speak to a doctor at some point in the week, and you might get an appointment within six weeks. It's incredible, if you're lucky. So anyway, I don't think there's much envy in terms of people looking on at the NHS, particularly with you know the current situation that, that we're in. But it is well acknowledged that there are problems in the healthcare system in Ireland, and it's going to be one of the central points of the new election coming up in a couple of years, without a doubt. It was in 2019 and it will be again.
0: As you have heard, there is little comparative similarity between 1920s Ireland and modern Scotland. This makes it difficult to compare the potential experience of an independent Scotland with how Ireland's eventual wealth emerged. Dr Gallagher has more.
3: It's also worth mentioning that Ireland has changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years. There's a quip that Ireland jumped straight from the 19th century to the 21st century, bypassing the 20th. And in lots of ways, that seems to make sense. You know, it was one of the first countries recently to introduce gay marriage in 2015, then the abortion referendum in 2018, repealed the eighth, which was hugely influential and has been brought in. It's now become quite a liberal democracy. And a lot of this was triggered by a sort of Final explosion of public sentiment regarding abuses in the Catholic Church, which all come out throughout the 1990s into the 2000s. Prior to then, I think people would have known about them, but there was a lot of uh, a culture of sort of secrecy, hush hush. There's some bad eggs. Let's not talk about it very much. And often the the victim was the one who was blamed rather than the perpetrators within within the church. All of that changed in the 90s into the 2000s, and the church lost a huge amount of its support and power. I mean, there are far, far fewer parishioners going to church in the south today. Most of those who are going are uh, new recent arrivals to Ireland. Polish people, Lithuanians, Latvians, those who've you know taken up residence in Ireland, who are much more, I suppose, still practicing Catholicism, whereas a lot of young people really are not going to church anymore. So we have to remember that while Ireland was extraordinarily Catholic and conservative throughout much of the 20th century, there has been a galactic change in the last 20 years, or even less than that, which would make a much more comparable to Scotland in that sense. There's no massive religious order that's sort of, you know, governing things. I think Irish people have a much more secular understanding than they did. One that's influenced as much as anything by wealth and capitalism. I I sort of hate to make the comparison for for the obvious reasons, but, you know, Thatcher in the late 1970s into the 80s, who sort of got rid of nationalisation and tried to make Britain a much more economically liberal place. Ireland is Fairly similar in lots of ways, and it is pro money, pro capitalism, and that has created huge disparities in the country. So, in, in some ways, the Ireland that Scotland might compare itself to today is still is fundamentally different to the Ireland of even 20 years ago. And so, I, I don't think the church fundamentally would be that much of a blocker or a kind of yeah a, a huge point of difference between the two countries. But it would have been if we were having this conversation 20 years ago.
0: Was Ireland, at least in the first few decades of independence, always destined to be a Conservative with a small-c state? In Scotland, much of the debate around independence is led by radical voices, wanting significant changes to the institutions of the United Kingdom, and most commonly, more left-wing solutions to problems Scotland within the Union faces. Was Ireland's battle with rural and church-influenced conservatism always inevitable?
3: very sad reality in this is no, Ireland, in fact, the Irish radicals who were thinking about what a future Ireland could be from those you know way back into the 1880s, but particularly those around the time of the War of Independence and indeed after, there were loads of possibilities on the table for what a future Ireland might look like. And some of those were incredibly radical. Some of those like kind of writings of Louis Bennett talked about Ireland not being a narrow, inward looking country. And she really criticised Sinn Féin, who were pursuing or several of his leaders were pursuing a more narrow, inward focused looking campaign, saying Irishness is going to be defined by the country, by particular forms of how we are historically different to the British. She argued that actually Ireland needs to be outward looking. It needs to build allies and relationships with other countries in the world, with other new emerging international organizations. And it needs to do that to avoid world war and to, to build these sorts of economic relations, particularly within Europe, so that everyone is slightly tied to each other in a way she's kind of articulating an early EU, which is amazing in 1918. And she's joined by many others who have radical ideas for what women might be doing in the new Irish state, that they should be enfranchised, you know, from the age of 21, which was common at the time, and that they should be citizens, and citizens who who should be active in the political culture of the new country, but also ones who are, you know, uh, much more liberal ideas around gender, that women should not have a place that's in the home, and they should be very active spokespeople, they should be politicians, they should be as engaged in political affairs as their men folk, and they have much more rights and choice, even those who call themselves Catholics. So, all of these radical ideas were on the table for what a future Ireland could be in 1918 and 1919. And the irony of the whole thing is that so many of them were negated, and instead, when Ireland had to finally figure out what did it meant to be an independent country. It siphoned off all of this radicalism and instead landed on quite a conservative space. Um, So much so that when historians write about Ireland, they talk about the counter-revolution. So after the revolution, and therefore after independence, you get the hit and rewind button, right, going back the way, which I think we're seeing in big liberal democracies today, like in America with Roe v. Wade and things like this. So no, it wasn't destined to be a conservative space or a conservative place whereby the Catholic Church had huge amounts of power, has to be remembered that Protestant nationalists were really active in so many of the new radical movements that happened in Ireland. This was not something that was religiously defined. It became a religious relationship when the new conservative state came about. But there were much bigger opportunities on the table in the 1920s. And the sad thing is that so many of them disappeared. So I, I suppose the comparison there for Scotland is that at this moment when Scotland doesn't have independence, there can be lots of, I suppose, different reasons. What does it mean to be an independent Scots person? Or what does it mean to be an independent Scotland, and some of those might be quite varied in what that looks like, but in the end, they'll have to be narrowed down into something. Right, if that project came about. And the caution there, I think, would be not to narrow it down in a way that happened in Ireland, in a way that basically left lasting legacies on the 20th century and not very good legacies on the 20th century. Even though one can talk about the restoration of rights, of healing ancient wrongs, now you're getting independence, et cetera. Independence comes with all of these new realities of what it looks like, the practicalities of independence. And in Ireland's case, he ended up squeezing out all of the radicalism and potential and condensing it down into something that was horribly conservative and ultimately detrimental to the country for much of the 20th century. I don't think that's a political point. I think so many historians would agree with that. Nobody can talk about the 20s and 30s as a success. Very different views about neutrality in the Second World War, only from the 50s is Ireland tried to attempt some form of industrialisation. But even then, it really took until this larger entity, the EU, was something Ireland could be a part of and sort of share and, and grow from. So, yeah, the lesson there for, for the Scotland, I think, is to think carefully about what does it mean to be Scottish? And then when you're coming to define that, to be careful not to define it into something that is incredibly narrow, um, as was the case in, in Ireland.
0: Are there any lessons for Scotland when looking at Ireland's experiences with independence when it comes to social policy?
3: I think there's lots of lessons. And the first is to remember that there is no black and white answer to this. It's a very messy picture. And in many ways, I don't think people looking for independence in Scotland today can compare Scotland's case very well with Ireland. This is for a number of reasons. I mean, one, the 1920s are very different to the 2020s. 1920s are an era when there's still a very small state, a nascent state, no real allies in the world, trying to distance itself from a bigger power, which in Ireland's case was the island next door. In Scotland's case, it would be those people down there. And so there's, there's a real difference in terms of what the states are able to do. You know, modern political parties, there have been no history of that uh, in Ireland. Yes, there had been, of course, a major party that campaigned for independence, but it never had the task of trying to develop an independent state. That is a comparable point. That's going to be a a complicated problem. No party has had the experience of trying to build a new country or a new state. It's very difficult to say whether those new Irish parties did it well. In some ways, they did do it very well by decommissioning after civil war, by trying to get some semblance of the state up and running, by trying to ensure some systems were ongoing. They were systems that were the legacy of the British connection, mind you, many of which just fell quite neatly into the new Irish state. But also, you know, quite badly by trying to introduce policies that made Ireland much more Irish and that had quite negative consequences economically, but also in terms of immigration and then in terms of morality. They might be quite different to our current era. Um, Scotland itself, I suppose, the nationalists have positioned themselves as quite a liberal, as a liberal nationalism, which stands out more and more, I think, in, in a context whereby so many of those liberal democracies seem to be hitting rewind on liberalism and, and democracy, with Roe v. Wade in America and American politics more generally, but we can think elsewhere in Europe when there's resurgent right-wing movements happening from France to Germany and, of course, also in Britain. So I think standing out as, as a liberal democracy makes Scotland much more comparable to where Ireland is today.
0: There is also a cautionary lesson about what an independent Scotland defines itself as and what those who support independence define what it means to be Scottish. This, Dr Gallagher says, is key to avoid excluding parts of the country that may not feel the same way about independence, but still live and work in the state they call home.
3: What does nationalism mean? What does it mean to be Scottish? What does it mean to be Irish? Sometimes when you try to pin that down into policy, it can have very negative repercussions. So I suppose my my caution there would be, To think very carefully about that. Like I say, in Ireland's case in the 1930s, what it meant to be Irish was distancing itself from being British. Not only did it have all of the impacts that I've outlined, but also it meant that for minorities in Ireland who still considered themselves an affinity to Britain, to the Anglo-Irish, you know, it became much more difficult for them in a state that was defining itself against them. And if you're going to have a definition of Scottishness that might not be as capacious as one for Scottish people who consider themselves equally British or maybe English, that can lead to an insider-outsider conundrum. And that can be very difficult and generate new forms of politics, which might be more difficult to manage. So I suppose the lesson there is to be capacious in the understanding of what national identity is, though people will have different understandings of what that actually means, not least because you need to think about the minorities who won't agree with you He won't agree with perhaps the independence model, as so many minorities in Ireland did not. But nonetheless, they are going to be a part of the new system if independence were to come about. And thinking creatively on ways to ensure those minorities have representation and rights, and that they aren't made to feel non-Scottish because they don't inhabit a particular narrow definition of Scottishness, that would be really important.
0: An independent Scotland's approach to how it looks after and cares for its population will be heavily influenced not only by the people running the country, but also by how the country defines itself. There are risks to narrowing the definition of what it means to be Scottish or what Scotland should stand for. This, in Ireland's experience, can lead to unforeseen consequences in relation to the type of country you end up creating and how its cultural bedrock becomes established. The lessons for Scotland from Ireland in particular are myriad, but it will be up to the politicians of the day, should Scotland become independent, to tread carefully over the eggshells of a divided country. If the 2014 independence referendum and the 2016 Brexit referendum taught us anything, it is that deep constitutional divisions have a habit of spilling over and defining mainstream politics regardless of the consequences. That will be a political challenge for the first few generations of post-independence politicians to tackle. Next week on How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices, we look at the question of how an independent Scotland could navigate its relationships with the rest of the world. You can find out more about this series each week in Saturday's edition of The Scotsman and online at scotsman.com. How to be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices is produced and hosted by me, Connor Matchett, and edited by Kelly Crichton.